Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report Strategy Series, sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, and it is my honor and pleasure today to welcome to the program the Commander of the Royal Canadian Navy, Vice Admiral Angus Topshi, who has commanded at sea and ashore in the Atlantic and Pacific. He's a veteran of the Afghanistan War and NORAD who is working to rekindle his forces, high intensity warfighting culture and skills. In fact, this discussion coincides with his new guidance to the force to drive change. He's also spoken thoughtfully about the need for national leaders as well as the public to come to grips with the reality of modern warfare that will be far more violent, deadly and devastating than in the past. And hence the vital imperative to deter future conflicts, sir. It's an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us. Well, thanks very much, Vago, and I hope I can live up to that introduction that you uh, you just gave me. So we'll see how this goes. I am sure it's going to be uh, absolutely terrific. And thanks again for your time. Uh, our series of conversations with leading strategists and thinkers is sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems and devoted to the memory of one of the nation's greatest national security strategists, Andy Marshall, uh, the former director of the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment. This strategy series is not affiliated with the Andrew W. Marshall Foundation. And before we get started, Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, as I mentioned, uh, not only sponsors this strategy series, but our broader strategy coverage uh, overall. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval uh, coverage. Uh, sir, this conversation today is an outgrowth of several discussions uh, we had that started last year when HMS uh, Queen Elizabeth, the Royal Navy's flagship, was in New York for the uh, annual Atlantic Future Forum. Uh, and we refined when we saw each other um, once more at the uh, Halifax International Security Forum, truly a, a, a great event each year. Um, I want to get to the warfighting uh, environment in in a future, but I but I think that it's uh, it's it's curious that Canada is sort of seen as an as an Atlantic power, an Atlantic nation, uh, rather than actually a vitally important Pacific power as well, right? I mean, when we talk about Pacific powers, increasingly we hear uh, Britain. Indeed, the AUKUS uh, agreement puts Britain uh, set, uh, uh, centrally in the Pacific. We think about France. What's the case to be made for Canada as a vitally important Pacific power? Yeah, so Canada's always had an interesting place in the world. Uh, historically, uh, you know, the the two sort of nations that were central to our development, uh, England and France, were European powers. Our focus has, has always been across the Atlantic. We're a founding member of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO. Uh, and just about every map in Canada shows an Atlantic-centric view of the world with the Americas on the far left and, uh, you know, Russia's eastern frontier on the, on the far right of the map, um, you know, sort of making the Pacific part of the margin. But the reality is that, uh, you know, we are a nation of immigrants. 23% of Canadians were born outside of Canada. We come from around the world. Uh, the Pacific is absolutely vital to our economic prosperity. It is the source of, uh, you know, it's a, an avenue for our exports, a source of imports, uh, and a critical region um, for all of us. But the, the other part that we often forget in Canada, well, we're very conscious of the Arctic, but, you know, we're a three ocean nation, one of the few in the world where really we we are expected to be capable of operating in all three of those. And probably for the first time in our history, we have to be able to operate simultaneously in all three oceans. And each of them really brings with it a different uh, strategic context, a background, and certainly different um, 
sort of challenges in terms of operating naval forces. Uh, I want to uh, go to um, the warfighting environment and how the warfighting environment at sea is changing, right? Increasingly, uh, the surveillance technology is such that we can see everything. And if you can see it, you can hit it, even if it's, if it's moving. You've just put new guidance out uh, to the force uh, as you try to uh, get it ready for that kind of high intensity warfighting uh, environment. I should also say there's a Canadian defense review underway. So I know that you'll be a little bit constrained if I make, try to, try to get you to make the case for more numbers uh, and, and more people. What are the core elements of your uh, guidance? What are you telling the force in terms of the skill sets they need? Um, because in turn, that's going to be shaping the review and the Navy that comes out of it. That's right. So I, I laid out three priorities when I took command of the Navy. The first of those is people uh, and people, hits on a number of different fronts. We're all very conscious of the fact that right now it is a, a challenging labor market with probably more jobs available than there are people willing to do them uh, as we come out of the pandemic. A lot of uncertainty around uh, economic conditions, um, concerns around inflation and everything else. And in that environment, it's been very difficult for us to attract and retain the talent that we require. So our, one of my focuses is on making sure that we are really invested on doing exactly that. And part of that starts with making sure we're getting the most out of every one of the people within the Canadian Armed Forces and the Royal Canadian Navy. So setting them up in an inclusive, welcoming environment where they can really, truly maximize their potential. So that's, I think, a critical first step in everything, because really, at the end of the day, people are what will design, you know, define and determine the success or failure of the Navy. The second thing is we're a Navy, so we have to have platforms. We've got to have the ships and submarines required to do the job. Uh, the government has laid out an ambitious agenda under the national shipbuilding strategy. As you note, we're about to do, we're in the midst of a defense policy update um, that will indicate, you know, where do we want to go with that? I don't foresee any changes to the government's plan to, to finish the procurement of six Arctic and offshore patrol vessels, two joint support ships, our tankers, 15 Canadian surface combatants, which are really the, the frontline combatant destroyer for the, the Canadian Navy. Um, and then as well as that, I'm anticipating a decision on submarines in the sense that the government has already indicated that they intend to replace the Victoria class and the defense policy update, I think, will provide some additional clarity on exactly what and how we'll do that. But you, you noted this whole element of, of naval warfare. And so the third element of my priorities has been about being ready to fight. Um, and so, you know, once we've got the, the people we need with the right training experience and, and being properly enabled on the platforms that we need for the future, the, you know, the reality is that we may be needing to fight tonight. And for that, that means we need to adopt the right mindset. We've seen in Ukraine that at the end of the day, it's not about whether or not you've got the greatest equipment in the world. It's not whether or not you have more of it than your enemy. It's about how well you operate and do you create a culture of innovation, a culture of resilience and resistance uh, and a culture that is just determined to overcome the odds and to win no matter what. And so for me, the setting a culture that is ready to fight in the Royal Canadian Navy has been critically important. To that end, I've tasked uh, the two fleet commanders. We have a fleet commander for the Atlantic fleet and the Pacific fleet, as well as our submarine force commander. Those three officers are specifically responsible for making sure that that attitude is inculcated throughout our Navy. And our goal uh, and, and firm intention is to be world leaders in the conduct of anti-submarine warfare, because we know that the Halifax-class frigate, that's the mainstay of our fleet today, when paired with the Cyclone uh, Embarked Helicopter and the Aurora Maritime Patrol Aircraft is a world leading thing that leverages great Canadian technology with some amazing Canadian companies and our scientists at Defence Research and Development Canada. So I think there's a real thing there, but you know we've got to be ready for that fight if, and because as you noted, 
um, if we're not ready for it, we're not going to be able to deter it. And then we're going to find ourselves in a really bad place. And so I want to make sure that there is, you know, absolute certainty that Canada is ready to defend its national interests anywhere in the world in the maritime domain. You uh, mentioned uh, when, when we saw each other in uh, Halifax, HMCAS, uh, uh, Sackville is up there, one of the flower class uh, Corvettes uh, that is a tangible manifestation of that high intensity anti-submarine warfighting skill that Canada brought uh, to World War II in, in shepherding uh, convoys uh, across uh, the Atlantic. And again, a role uh, in anti-submarine warfare that Canada led uh, throughout uh, the Cold War. Um, I want to take you to the point of war at sea, right? Uh, at the, when we were at the Atlantic Future, Future Forum, there was a lot of discussion of a high intensity land combat because uh, the Ukraine war had been ongoing for about six months uh, at that point. We were coming off of 20 years in Iraq uh, and Afghanistan where you also uh, served. Uh, and you noted that while there's a tendency of thinking about the bloodiness of land combat, and obviously this is not a you know competition of a you know navy guys have it worse, but the nature of war at sea is to to be actually far more violent. A bad day at sea can actually incur an enormous number of casualties, a shocking number of casualties on only a handful of ships, as we saw whether it was in Jutland or or elsewhere. Um, how are you preparing your forces? You know, you're a student of history. You have to actually visualize how bad it can get if you're going to drive the, the necessary changes, right? What does history teach us about the nature of war at sea? Uh, how sudden, how violent and exceptionally deadly it can be, even after we've seen Iraq, Afghanistan and Ukraine. Absolutely. And, and so one of the first lessons in, in army combat on land is, is really is that there's an expectation that you never know when an ambush is going to come. And it's all about how you react to that, how quickly you can turn the tide and everything else. The history of maritime warfare teaches us that the first effective salvo almost always wins the battle. There is no coming back from that first hit, um, especially in the missile age, where that first hit is likely to disable the vast majority of the systems on board the ship. Um, and so you can see that right off the bat in the in well. You know, we haven't had a lot of maritime warfare, uh, especially not between peer nations. The, you know, probably the closest example would be the, the Falklands War in the 1980s, where you saw the sinking of the Admiral Belgrano, which was over 300 Argentinian sailors uh, were killed in that single sinking. Um, just more recently than that, the Chonan, a South Korean Corvette, was sunk off the coast of Korea by the North Koreans, and 42 Korean sailors died in that in a single um a single incident for which you know once that torpedo hit there's there's no fighting back uh, and so there's a lot of people on board our ships when that hit comes if we haven't managed to avoid it uh then it's going to be a really bad day and to make sure that sailors understand what that's going to involve the other thing is that we've become accustomed to this idea that there's a you know an immediate helicopter medevac flight to a rule three hospital uh, that we are able to honor the golden hour in combat. And that may be true of land combat where you can get those helicopters there where you have certainly in the types of combat we've been in more recently, you know, secure rule three hospitals that can provide that full spectrum right. of, of surgical care to a critically injured patient. At sea, this combat is likely to happen hundreds of miles from shore. Uh, and when it happens, there's no golden hour uh, because the you know any hospital is likely to also have been targeted because they're probably on board one of the other warships if they are around at all. And so that changes the definition and the nature of triage. There's only so much critical life-saving capability on board our ships. You simply can't put more of it on a frigate or a destroyer. 
Uh, and so some difficult choices will have to be made. And, and one of the things that's really important to resilience is preparing our sailors for those difficult decisions so they understand what's going to be active, asked of them in that environment and also understand that the prioritizations they're going to have to make if they suffer that first hit are more likely all about trying to save lives and, sa and then hopefully save the ship, not get back in the fight. As much as we want to say, yeah, yeah you, know, you need to get back in the fight, the reality of modern warfare is that's probably not going to be possible and we need to prepare them to understand how to immediately shift that prioritization. But most importantly, and this is where I really want to focus the fleet's effort is you need to avoid that first hit. You need to be more alert, more ready and more capable than your opponent. And you can never let your guard down for a second because if you take that hit, it is a bad day. Um, I, I want to take you uh, to both uh, the sensing uh, part of the equation and then the striking part of the equation uh, that, that uh, you've very articulately discussed. Um, once upon a time, there was a big ocean. You could lose yourself in that ocean. Uh, increasingly, we're seeing that the surveillance systems will track uh, you with great precision. You know, you were saying once upon a time when you were in the Western Pacific, you know, people were not tracking you incessantly, or at least that was the sense. Whereas now the Chinese will deploy unmanned assets and watch you 24-7. Then we have the kinetic element of it, which is far more deadly than anything we've seen in the past. And if you can see it, you can strike it. Talk to us about how this sort of ubiquitous surveillance environment actually could fundamentally change uh, naval operations, or at least how do we have to think about it, um, where you know, if, if your adversary can watch you, they can reach out and touch you, unfortunately, if they've made the investment. And there's one country in the Western Pacific that's made that investment. That's right. And so it's really understanding what are our vulnerabilities. And so we've gotten used to over the last probably 30 years at sea of operating in, in a, um, a full emitting mode where we've got all of our sensors, all of our radars, uh, sonars, everything is on all the time. Our radio connections are live and continuous. Um, and, you know, when we've not been worried about being tracked uh, in this day and age, it does not take much for a position to be indicated. And even if you are completely silent in terms of emissions, there are ways that ships can be tracked using space-based assets, a whole host of technologies. As you've noted, there's a host of unmanned systems or uncrewed systems that once they've you know, got your idea of where you're at, it's not that hard for them to, to locate you. So right. you know, it changes your mindset to you know, be operating in an environment where in a time of conflict, is the enemy going to know pretty much precisely where I'm going to be? And if so, how do I protect myself and assure that I can deliver the effects I need to achieve at the moment that's required? There's a lot of talk right now about distributed warfare. So how do you distribute the force and spread it out so that it's less vulnerable to attack, yet can still come together at the decisive moment to deliver the critical blow? Um, you know, there's a lot of thinking around that that goes on at a, at a classified level. But the bottom line is that we've learned that, you know, it's it's going to be a mix of just about everything and being extremely innovative and aware. Uh, so probably a lot more of, of things that we used to do, which are decoys. You know, at some point we might even bring back types of things like smoke screens, not the old traditional one where it's pure smoke, but maybe there are other ways to obscure or confuse the sensors that are being used to track us. And the other part for, again, coming back to resilience for sailors, is the need to make sure that they understand that in this environment, we're probably going to have to disconnect them completely and be and run in a complete MCON silence mode, um, meaning they're not going to have that traditional connectivity that they've come to expect back to their families at home. We're also mindful of the fact it's not just our adversary who tracks our position. 
there are all sorts of systems out there nowadays with automatic information systems or AIS at sea and ADSB in the air that where you can get real-time information about every platform uh, that's out there that's emitting. And then because of the sophistication of different sensors that will tell you that, hey, there's something there, it will quickly reveal that, wait, that uh, there's clearly there's a ship there, but it's not on AIS. So that must be something suspicious. So that dark target detection um, means that it's not just about going silent. We probably need to inject extra things into the system to confuse the understanding, confuse the picture, um, while at the same time maintaining our own picture based on whatever information we can gather from every available data source, which brings back again, now modern warfare means big data fusion, the ability to collate as much information as possible and to really pick the signal out of the noise of all of the little pieces of information we're picking up. So it's an incredibly complicated environment, requires some very, very talented, innovative thinkers. And fortunately, you know, navies around the world have been pretty good at attracting those types of people. In this kind of highly kinetic environment, right? I mean, we're now talking about hypersonic weapons that don't even have to have a warhead detonate and will virtually obliterate uh, a, a ship uh, on first round impact. Um, does that need to drive changes on how we develop a surface combatants, how we think about uh, survivability? because we have a tendency of investing a lot of money. United States Navy prides itself on a degree of compartmentalization, for example, that uh, other navies don't do, even though I have to say the Royal Canadian Navy uh, has very similar standards to what we have uh, in the United States. Does that need to change how we think about it, right? I mean, if you're $2 billion and you're bottom, at the bottom of the ocean or 200 million and you're at the bottom of the ocean, the thing is being at the bottom of the ocean, right? Do we need to think differently about what constitutes survivability uh, disposability, um, you know, at a, at, a, at a more fundamental level, given some of our standards, you know, really do date from World War II when we had to, you know, guard against folks dropping bombs on us or torpedoing us. Yeah, well, we're always examining our damage control standards and designs uh, in view, in light of the, you know, technology of the day. Um, you know, for a while, it looked as though, you know, small arms were an increasing threat in some of the environments we're going to operate in with we thought seriously about do we need to increase the armor on some of the ships to defeat that threat that i'd say now we're much more into the spectrum of missiles and everything else where it's it's not going to be the the size of the armor uh on a ship that will matter it's going to be making sure that the the, the missile misses um or is destroyed before it gets to you um so it certainly has informed our ship design the canadian surface combatant that we're building uh, you know is going to have uh the same type of robust compartmentalization in fact I think almost 700 tons of the weight over and above the design uh, is all about that enhanced compartmentalization for uh, to ensure survivability in the event we do take that first hit. The other part of this is that, uh, you know, and you've definitely seen some pioneer work on this by the U.S. Navy under Admiral Gilday, is to develop a whole series of uncrewed vessels. And the uncrewed vessels are not just about increasing the range of the, you know, of the ships uh, that are are crewed, but also providing additional things in the battle space so that you have different options in terms of, okay, I'm going to expose these things because I know that this vessel doesn't have a crew on it. And so it is in a sense expendable in a different way. Um, I, it also will act as something to confuse the picture because if I surround you know, the, the ship that's got the crew on it with a whole host of other potential targets that don't have crews on them, but that are adding to my ability to sense in the domain to perhaps that they might be also carrying weapons that are that will be operated and controlled from the crude platform or remotely. All of that to say is that I think the, the fleet of the future has to embrace crude and uncrewed systems. There's always going to be a place for human decision-making 
at some somewhere in that. And almost certainly there's going to be times where it needs to be present at sea, but that doesn't mean it needs to be on every platform or at every moment. And so how we work that piece to reduce our personnel vulnerability and achieve the effect, I think is, is one of the critical areas of thinking right now. Um, I, I should point out to the audience that uh, Canada has joined the United Kingdom as well as Australia uh, in the Type 26 uh, uh, future frigate, uh, which uh, is uh, an extraordinary ship uh, with uh, an extraordinary amount of capability. Uh, there were some folks who looked at this and said, hey, the United States should have adopted it as well, but we were on track on our own competition. Uh, and, and obviously the Constellation class is, is our new uh, frigate class. Uh, that is under development by uh, Fink Contieri uh, out in uh, sunny, sunny Wisconsin. Um, let me take you to the question of sort of how we need to think about connectivity. You know, you mentioned AI, big data, uh, and, you know, there was a lot of debate and discussion here in the United States about JADC2, uh, the Joint All Domain Command and Control System, and the, the notion of, of whether that actually in some respects does become almost the third offset capability if you get it right right, when it operates denied, when it's gathering information, when it's connecting, when it's not. What do, what, do you, what do you think are the right attributes, especially given that the United States uh, and Canada are the most uh, intimate of strategic partners, we're neighbors, uh, thank goodness, <laughs> always good to have good neighbors uh, on your borders, uh, but also pretty much everything that we do, we end up doing together. What's what's How are you thinking about what this um, command and control nodes of the future look like, and and the role of AI and automatic queuing, and in fact, automatic targeting, right? There's a sense of squeamishness about it, but at the end of the day, our adversaries also will be harnessing this data and using it for targeting, and we have a lot of smart weapons as it is. How do we need to think about this entire space from your perspective? Yeah, it is. It's a, there's a lot of really challenging um, tactical and, and ethical issues uh, as we examine that. You know, so how do we ensure that we are able to operate weapon systems that comply with the laws of armed conflict and that that will hit the targets that they're intended to do so? Because, you know, when we hit the wrong things, it's not just that uh, you can cause, you know, casualties to civilians or collateral damage. You can often undermine your strategic intent um, and, and create effects that will make it even more difficult to win, to ultimately win the battle. Um, I think we have to make sure that we Open, embrace technology and systems like JADC2 with eyes wide open, understanding the full potentiality of them, but also recognizing some of the dangers. Um, I think we need to make sure that we are consulting widely so that we we don't you know, have too narrow or focused a view and miss some of the critical things or critical other ways that a technology could go wrong. Um, you know, so it's the evolution of, uh, if you look at, you know, self-driving cars is a great example of this. You know, the leap forward that has been made in terms of what a car can do on its own compared to, you know, a car that my father would have driven, you know, 15, 20 years ago is incredible for how much more capable those cars are. But that final step of actually being able to drive itself through a crowded city center at rush hour or to, to go from highway driving into sort of city driving is really, really complicated. And that last little bit is the difficult piece, which is why I think there's going to always be a place for people in there, because ultimately war is a human endeavor. It is a contest of wills. Uh, so, so that component is going to be in there. What exactly it looks like, because you're right, there's a lot of decision-making this day, especially in the age of hypersonics, where it's simply a human cannot think fast enough for that, but there has to be some human thought behind all of it. So how you create an environment where the right decisions are presented to, to people in the right manner 
and we recognize the danger of the misuse of the technology in the hand of our adversaries. And so we see the full potentiality of not just how we might use it, but how it could be used against it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm simply, I'll be honest, not smart enough to think through all of the potential um, repercussions and potential uh, of, of that, but we're working hard to try and make sure that we are eyes wide open to that. One other piece I wanted to touch on you, because you talked about um, the importance of allies in this world. I think, you know, my service down in Colorado Springs with NORAD and US Northcom for a couple of years um, taught me the importance and the value of, of close alliances. And also, I think that we sometimes forget just how incredible the NORAD alliance is designed by two people who had fought, a Canadian and American who'd fought together in World War II and knew that to defend North America from the Soviet bomber attacks that they saw coming in the 1950s and 60s, they had to work together as a single team. And so it's the only binational command in the world where you know, the, a, a military leader from one country can give an order to use deadly force to a military unit from another country. Right. In every other case, that that use of force decision has to go through national lines. In NORAD, it's binational, by design, because it moves at the speed of warfare. Um, and I think we're seeing now with AUKUS and the willingness of the US, the UK, and Australia to say a lot of this technology that has previously always been closely guarded national only, we need to make it, you know, three eyes at this point for that to work. I think that finding the right balance of how we share enough with enough confidence in our close allies that we can get into the real decision-making criticality of information, proper and true cooperative engagement capability where we really are prepared to take each other, you know, trust each other to the point where we will make firing decisions based on what we're seeing from others is critically important. We'll have to keep national you know, uh, sovereignty in mind and in the loop. I don't foresee that sort of binational command that NORAD represents expanding widely um, Perhaps, well, probably not for sure until we were actually in real combat. And then in that case, I think there, there might be some potential given the pace of modern combat. But honestly, it's probably always going to be more aligned to the, the national authority. But the closer the cooperation up to the moment of firing, the more successful we will be. Uh, I would, uh, I, I really would wholeheartedly endorse that. And again, right, it's better to think about this stuff before it happens, uh, as opposed to, ooh, now, now we're, uh, now we're in a shooting match, and now we've got to uh, sort of figure it, figure that stuff out. Let me uh, take you to two uh, questions because I want to spend uh, the rest of the conversation on on culture change, driving culture change, where you think it's right, where you think it has to change, and how to do it. Let me ask you the first question about numbers, right? Um, at, at the end of the day, almost everybody acknowledges that given the sort of, right, I mean, Ukraine reminds you that vast amounts of equipment and people unfortunately get chewed up in high intensity conflict. You said there's a review ongoing and, and our focus has been much better capability, uh, better ships, better trained people. We can get along with, with fewer of them. Um, and unfortunately, one of the things we've also all realized is we sort of underinvested in air and missile defenses, for example. We've underinvested in the range of our weaponry as our adversaries have in increased it. Given you have sort of a fixed fleet size, what are some of the ways to better defend, uh, to, to stretch your arms out, if you will, and to be able to strike at greater range? What is it we should expect to see at the end of the review and in terms of deliverable capabilities as you continue to modernize the force to better defend, better strike in the future? 
Yeah, and so I think what you'll see coming out of the defense policy update is a continuation of what the government's already announced. So the government's made a $40 billion Canadian investment in NORAD modernization to make sure that the continent of North America is defended in cooperation with their closest ally in the U.S. Um, you know, we've got a commitment to building the 15 Canadian surface combatants that will be the core of the Royal Canadian Navy for years to come. Um, and that is, as you pointed out, it's the right ship. I was actually reassured when I saw what the U.S. had selected for the Constellation class. I realized that looks an awful lot like what we're building. And so if the U.S. Navy has examined this problem and come up to pretty much the same solution, then we probably had the right idea as well. Um, and so numbers is a fascinating question. Um, we have developed the habit of imagining the types of conflict where we are, you know, doing insurgency, low intensity conflict at a distance where the supply chain is secure, where there, you know, there's no challenge about the home base and the intensity of weapons use and ammunition use is so low that we can, we can manage that through normal uh, procurement. That's not the case in the type of high intensity conflict we're seeing in the Ukraine. And so I think we need to understand is how do we reshape ourselves to be ready for that fight? But if you look at the, the lessons of history is those mass mobilizations, you know, of, of really getting all industry behind everything didn't happen until the conflict had, had started. Some of the ramp up absolutely was in the years before the war when it became fairly clear in Britain that, OK, this is going to happen. And they really turned on defense production. But the let's convert it. And, and you know, the U.S. didn't stop making cars until 1941, well, 42, effectively, after the Pearl Harbor raid, when it became clear, hey, we're in this fight now. And so it doesn't matter if we can build another Ford. We need tanks. We need aircraft. We need other stuff. And so I think understanding what would what's within the realm of the possible in this day and age in terms of mass mobilization and everything else, and what's the culture that's required in society to, to find the balance of, we'll build a sufficient force to ensure deterrence. Uh, but not so so large a force as to bankrupt the state uh, and undermine what we're actually trying to protect in the first case, which is our our, our values and freedoms uh, here in Canada and the United States. That's a difficult balance. I think, you know, the indications are that we were a little light on that, that we've underinvested in defense up to this point, given the threats that we now see in the world. I think that's a fairly clear consensus. Finding the right level of investment going forward is the real challenge for governments as, as we're dealing with a whole host of issues like income inequality and making sure that we've got People, you know, the population with the right education, training, and healthcare is, you know, as our population's age, healthcare becomes more and more of an expensive demand on people. And so finding the balance there is a challenge. That's why I, I don't envy government and the difficult choices they have to make in this day and age to find the right balance to assure national security. Is there, uh, let me ask one uh, senior leadership question. Is there a recognition uh, by senior leaders about the nature of what a future conflict might be? look like, um, right? I mean, because historically, um, the the sense has been uh, that those who are actively like you, who are service chiefs, and have been looking and studying the problem have a tendency of seeing it more perhaps, uh, you know, without being disrespectful to any uh, folks in, in political leadership or in Ottawa or elsewhere. But is there that increasing realization of all of these vulnerabilities, so that it's not, you know, so that the conversation is not a one sided one, but actually both both sides of the conversation, whether you're sitting in uniform or 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 sitting on Parliament Hill, the the sight picture is the same sight picture, if you will. Yeah, I think the the most important thing, and this touches on your your comment about culture. I think the most important thing is for us to have the confidence to have honest and frank conversations about the realities that we see. 
Um, and to understand that perspectives will be different based on, on on where you sit and what your imperatives are and what your job is. A politician will, will naturally tend to see the worlds in terms of hope and possibility, things that could happen, things that they can offer their voters. Whereas in the military, we tend to be much more pessimistic as in what's the worst case scenario? What's the worst thing that could happen? What's, what are the contingencies I need to be prepared for if everything goes wrong? And so, you know, when you've got an optimist and a pessimist looking at a problem the same way, it can sometimes be difficult to, to recognize that actually a lot of the underpinning stuff is, is the same. We're just not entirely convinced that, you know, what's the upside you know, opportunity, downside risk, and what's the right balance to try and make sure that we are pushing things in the direction where we get the best possible outcome. And and is that discussion being had with the public in the way that we need to have it, right? I mean, I remember at one point I asked uh, Secretary Mattis uh, this question, and I said, well, how do we need to engage in that conversation about the deadliness of a potential future Pacific War? And he said very carefully, <laughs> which I thought was uh, his, his uh, wonderful sense of understatement, right? Um, or, or do you think that the Ukraine war really is driving this home? for for a lot of folks and sort of helping sort of make that case, do you think? So I think there's a growing realization uh, in Canada, as in most of, of the rest of the sort of, quote unquote, Western world, um, that the Ukraine conflict shows that, uh, you know, that that norm that that one country does not invade another country in a major land attack um, has been broken. Uh, and I, there's a number of countries around the world that would argue that that had already been broken a number of places. But suffice to say, you know, Russia invading the Ukraine in the manner they did last February 24th um, has highlighted the, the risk to a lot of people. But our day-to-day -day lives, you know, of just the, the regular challenges of each person uh, every day, sometimes it's really hard to imagine that. It's hard for us to imagine what it would be like to be under attack from another country. It's hard for us to imagine the, the potential risks and the, the hazards that Ukrainians face each and every day. And so naturally we tend not to to put a lot of stock in that things that we have not seen that we have not experienced tend to not be as as likely or realistic and so it's it's you know not everybody sees that as a potential threat and again i go back to i'm actually kind of happy that most canadians tend to be optimistic and happy that you know we're in a good place right now and and my goal is certainly as the commander of the navy is to make sure that that remains true that we have developed the technology the, the capabilities required as the canadian armed forces to make sure that we are effective in deterrence and we contribute to those you know, um, different aspects of national power to make sure that we continue to deter any expansion of that conflict uh, and really help Russia and China and others understand the, the, that if we all follow the rules-based international order, it's to everybody's benefit. Uh, let me ask one last uh, high north uh, question. You said at the very beginning of the uh, of the conversation, right, that Canada is almost ideally suited. It's an Atlantic power, a Pacific power, and and also in the high north. What is the kind of investment that's going to be required, right? I mean, we're seeing climate change undermining infrastructure. Uh, we talked to the commander of the 11th Air Force, uh, General David Nahum, uh, uh, just last week, where he talked about some of the challenges uh, in in the high north. What's the kind of investment and strategic thinking that is going to be required for a very, very important patch uh, of uh, part of the world that is being increasingly contested, right? I mean, the Chinese are an observer, our Arctic uh, power, even though uh, uh, Arctic Council member, where a lot of people scratch their heads about that a bit, um, and, and is unfortunately becoming more and more navigable every year. What's, what's the right approach to be taking up there and a strategic approach uh, from an alliance, not just a Canadian perspective, but an alliance perspective? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, each of the Arctic nations, uh, there's eight Arctic members, full members of the Arctic Council. 
um, seven of which will hopefully all be NATO members before long, and then Russia. Uh, our our high norths are different for each of us. Canada probably has the most sparsely populated uh, of of anyone, um, and so. You know, could we build military infrastructure up there? Should we build military infrastructure up there? Yes, but with a caveat. And I think the reality of of the small population base and everything else is that anything we put up north needs to be dual use. It needs to benefit civil the civilian population and be of value to them, while also being capable of being employed to support our you know sovereignty operations and, if necessary, defense operations up in the high north. But I tend to regard the Canadian Arctic as an expeditionary theater. It is not a place where we will be supported from. It is a place where we will deploy to and operate. And then when we go up there, we will need to bring everything we need to operate with us because there isn't the infrastructure and the capacity to support uh, our operations up there. And there and there will not be for the foreseeable future. It's just, it is far too vast a region. Um, you know, it, it, it looks large on a map, but it is much, much larger in reality. The distances are vast. Um, and the population is incredibly small. So how do we how do we look at that? I think we need to look at it with um, a realistic understanding of the cost of building things in the high north. Right. And yeah, and it will be wasted effort if we build things for defense um, when they have no value for the local population uh, because it, it, you know, yes, potentially in wartime, but it just creates different targets that become easier to hit in some ways too. So uh, it's a difficult piece. There's absolutely a level of investment that is required, um, but doing it in a smart, sensible, and appropriate manner is the challenge. Um, let me uh, take you to culture change. Uh, and I'm sorry it's taking us a little bit longer to get here than uh, I, I, I wanted. Um, what's the trick to getting this right? What part of the culture needs to change? Uh, right, I mean, you're the, the custodian, the, the steward of the culture of the uh, Royal Canadian Navy. Um, what, what are, how are you driving this, right? What has to change? What doesn't have to change? And how do you drive that change so that it's, it's lasting? Yeah. So I, I've taken an approach of going back to, to basics. The Canadian Armed Forces have three fundamental ethical principles. The first is respect the dignity of all persons. The second is serve Canada before self. And sorry, the second is serve Canada before self. And the third is obey and support lawful authority. Uh, I've told my sailors that if we can achieve those three things and apply those in, in all contexts, then you're doing the right thing. What I need to do is create an environment that truly, you know, reflects those where every person is, you know, we're short people. And so every person in the Royal Canadian Navy, whether they are regular or reserve, military or civilian, needs to be put in a position where they can use, tap into their full potential and really feel as though that they are engaged, valued and able to succeed enabled and empowered to do what they need to do to, to, to get their jobs done. And they need to be imbued with an attitude of, we're just going to get this done, no matter you know how challenging it might be, our, we'll just get it done. And so my goal is to make sure that everything about our organization is aligned behind creating that mindset. And that starts by making sure that everybody really truly does feel welcome, that uh, you know, uh, gender, race, ethnicity, cultural background, ec economic background, all of those things that, that no one is looking at those. They're looking at you as an individual person, seeing you as a person and making sure that we find ways to make you the most effective sailor that you can be. And I think we're, we're making a lot of progress in terms of making sure that that environment is real for, for every member of the Royal Canadian Navy. Um, let me take you to the question of risk. Uh, at, at the end of the day, um, you need a prudent approach to risk, but not inculcate a sense of risk aversion to the point where it becomes stifling, right? That people are so afraid of making a mistake. Um, how are you getting the empowerment 
uh, of the force right, uh, that if you make a mistake, but do it for the right reasons and not the wrong reasons, uh, right? Angus, Angus Topshi lives to fight another day and eventually gets his third star or her third star and becomes uh, chief of the Royal Canadian Navy. What's the right way of getting this? Because a big concern and debate and discussion here in the United States is that we are getting too risk averse in any of the of the services. And indeed, why folks like uh, CQ Brown, uh, Dave Berger, Jim McConville, uh, are are we you know uh, working so hard to try to sort of change the dynamic and and risk tolerance? Yeah, risk is a fascinating thing um, that we often misunderstand. And risk is uh, there's many facets and layers to risk. Um, often we can make things far more dangerous by trying to minimize the risk. Uh, a classic example of that in naval operations is that it is risky to put a sailor over the side of a ship in a small boat and send them off to sea. And so, you know, we have a tendency to sort of say, oh, you know, we should only do that when the seas are calm. Well, that's fine until the point where you have to do that because now you have to go rescue people off of that sinking fishing vessel in an Atlantic storm. And they don't have the ability to sort of decide, well, that's too windy. We're going to wait till it gets better. They have to go. And so you have to always be training up to the limit to make sure that your sailors have the confidence, know their equipment, know the procedures, and you want to do that in a peacetime environment where you have the luxury of being able to say, stop, okay, we don't have to do this today. So we're having some issues. Let's learn from it, you know, pause, maybe reset, maybe carry on, maybe just debrief it and, and, and wait for a better opportunity to, to go practice it again. That type of pushing an envelope is necessary. And in the course of that, we have to accept that, you know, very, very, very few people deliberately do things to harm or damage the organization or other individuals. Um, and so when accidents happen, um, you know, we're, what, what were the factors that contributed to it? We have a tendency sometimes to overreact to, to accidents and to, and to assume the worst intentions of somebody when in fact, no, it was probably an honest mistake. Yeah, there might've been elements of negligence, but what sort of systemic things have we put in place that might've contributed to sort of the environment in which that accident happened. So I'm hoping to create more of a flight safety culture where we're really open to debriefing and learning from anything that goes wrong in the Navy, not overreacting to it. And one of my absolute, you know, sort of uh, rules is, you know, when we have, when something goes wrong, our reaction will not be to put a new rule or regulation in place until we can have clearly established that it was, you know, that that is a new necessary rule or regulation and it wasn't a case of we had actually got the right procedures and regulations in place. We just hadn't followed them because more often than not, we're layering stuff on top of it to the point where we can't, no one can possibly understand or apply all of the rules, regulations, and procedures that we've got in place. And so that's why, again, I come back to a core message of simplify things, understand the task at hand, be, be clear-eyed about the, the risks that we're taking uh, and know when you should be up to the limit and when you need to take a step back, know your people. And that brings me back again, full circle to culture. How do you maintain, how do you manage risk in an environment? It has to be in an environment where the culture is when someone sees something that's, that's not right or sees a better way to do things, they have the confidence to be able to speak up with honesty and clarity and, and be heard. Um, even if it's to say, this is the worst idea I've ever heard, you can't do that and be heard when they say that. Do How do you, um, right, I mean, part of the challenge, I mean, your your message is very reminiscent to uh, one we heard from the Chief of Staff of the Air Force, CQ Brown, right? It's, it's important to, you know, set the broad uh, directions and then set the tone of empowerment. I've, I've uh, been uh, lucky enough to talk to some of your junior officers and sailors who do get a sense 
that uh, their leader, so this is a good reflection on you, sir, uh, that their leader sort of has their back and is encouraging them uh, to uh, question that which should be questioned, to rethink it, uh, right? I mean, ultimately get a fair hearing. Um, what do you think is the key to driving the success? And what are the things, right? I mean, one of, one of the problems with any innovative leader is sometimes you, you, you know, the innovative leader themselves don't generate necessarily the outputs, right? Strip away some of the regulations, the instructions, uh, the directives that become calcifying, right? What's the push and the pull in this, you think, that become successful in sort of sunsetting uh, rules that are sort of getting in the way that people are bringing to your attention, while at the same time sort of empowering them within reasonable limits, right? Because then when they get too empowered, then it, you see what I'm saying? It's 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 kind of a really interesting duality that when you open the door to that innovation and change, then you know it can become overbearing. And then what are you doing on your end in order to drive this? So talk to us a little bit about that yin and yang. If I haven't muddled the question too badly. No, it, you've 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 hit the essence of the problem, right? So I mean, the easy thing is to do is to say, "Oh, I've canceled all the regulations. Just go do with the right thing." Um, and and the message that would be heard if right, a lot of people is it, it you know it's fair game, free free for all, and I can go do whatever I want. When in fact the message is, I really want to minimize those down to there's you know core principles behind how we'll do things, uh, a layer of regulation process and procedure, but that. As I am setting a goal to be liberated, that means I am reducing the process you have to follow. That means you still have to have a plan. You have to have thought through the problem, identified the task that you're doing, and planned to do it. We can't just wing it all. We can't just, uh, you know, sort of, hey, let's see how this goes. You've got to have thought through the problem and come up with a plan for how you're going to execute it. Sometimes that has to be done quite quickly, but it, it is always a necessary part of the process. And so to try and create the right environment where people understand that, uh, yeah, I, I I do not want to constrain anyone with with piles of rules and regulations, but that that liberty is not, you know, there's an onus on the individual to make sure that they execute that in a thoughtful and considered manner. What's the hardest part of doing this? That's a tough question. It's really is trying to figure out um, how how to communicate my intent in a manner that will be understood. And so the challenge of any large organization is that uh, often the intent can be quite clear at the top, but that the way it gets passed down or the other inertia or culture that is set within the system can, can create a different outcome and a different understanding. So I'm, I'm always very mindful, I, I, you know, for one of me, the one of the fundamental um, leadership values is empathy, is trying to understand the, the perspective of others from the place of another, how will they perceive this and see this? And I find that that's really helpful in informing um, how we need to do things in order to, to create the mindset and create the culture and, and achieve the effects I want at the lowest end. But the hardest part is actually communicating that clearly because I learned a long time ago, it's a big organization. I cannot talk to every sailor and, and, and speak directly to them at every moment. I need to create leaders who understand all of that throughout the entire organization and have the trust to get out of their way and let them do that. And, and that letting go is, is, is harder than it seems. In the United States, um, the the focus uh, on uh, whether it's on diversity or inclusion or openness to other uh, points of view is it tends to be uh, conflated to say, well, war fighting is no longer a primary uh, concern, right? Whereas uh, other thoughtful leaders, I think General Brown falls in this category, 
make clear that, look, if you're not comfortable in your job day to day, whether you face sexual harassment or assault or, or any one of them, you know, if I can remove those impediments and make your life more rewarding, those are actually the keys to warfighting excellence. From, from your standpoint, how are these two inextricably linked, right? How is the building the high intensity warfighting skills and all of these other pieces actually an integral piece of the whole? Yeah, and so it, it's an interesting thing because we've often used sort of dress and department regulations in the in militaries to teach an attention to detail um, and standards and everything else that, that do translate into military success. But um, I think we've, we've lost sight of that. Those were proxies for skills and talents and, and values that we wanted in our force. It doesn't matter to me how long the hair of a soldier or a sailor is if they are a successful and effective sailor. If they feel more themselves because they are able to wear pink nail polish, then I'm all in on that. Now, if they've got nails that are so long that they can't hit the keys on the on the computer that they're using, then that's a problem. And so our view is that, uh, you know, they've got to be safe and effective, but otherwise absolutely willing to let people express their personalities. Um, it's not the simple dichotomy that you sometimes hear that, you know, it's a, it's a great parade ground military, but they suck in the trench uh, and vice versa. You know, you let, you let sailors and soldiers be. And I'm like, it's not like that. We have to understand what are the things, what are the values, ethics, and standards that are essential to them being successful in combat and on operations, um, and how do we inculcate those? Most of them not tied to dress, and so it's really simple to create a culture of inclusion when you sort of say, you know what, you got to wear the uniform, um, you know that we tell you to wear it, but uh, there's a lot of other things that you can use to express who you are and be yourself. Because if you feel more comfortable in, in being yourself, you are more likely to speak up and tell us the things that we need to know when we need to know them. So your, your focus is drive and fight your ship to its maximum capability. Uh, and then the other stuff becomes a hell of a lot less important. That's exactly it. So do I, um, am I fussed if everybody wears their uniform correctly? No, as long as all of the safety equipment that's associated with that uniform is worn correctly to enable them to do their job safely and effectively. Uh, let me ask you one last question. Uh, obviously, AUKUS uh, and the notion of a uh, submarine technology, nuclear submarine uh, technology sharing between the United Kingdom, Australia, and the United States is a big deal. Uh, everybody is now looking to Canada. Uh, Canada twice uh, tried to acquire nuclear uh, submarine capabilities, and the holdup was more in Washington than anywhere else. Uh, Canada has the benefit of also uh, being a country that operates nuclear power and operates nuclear power safely, uh, and is also a Five Eyes nation and America's closest ally. At the end of the day, do you see Canada opting uh, in a third go-around for nuclear capabilities that would ex expand the capabilities of the Canadian submarine force? Um, so the short answer to that question is no, no, not in the short term. Uh, the longer, more complicated answer is that uh, Canada is a nuclear nation. We have designed, built, and even exported nuclear reactors, um, and we continue to use them to today. We have a, a great nuclear industry here in Canada, so we have proven the ability, as you said, to safely operate nuclear power plants. Um, that's a separate matter from the ability to operate a nuclear submarine. Uh, you know, the reality is that the Victoria class submarines that we have now will start to decommission early in the 2030s, and that class will have to be retired by 2040. There isn't really a viable path for us to acquire a nuclear submarine prior to the expiry of that. So it really makes it a non-starter for me. If the government of Canada said that, you know what, we want the Canadian Royal Canadian Navy to have a nuclear submarine, I would say that's great. I'm still going to need to build or buy 
a diesel electric submarine to maintain our ability to operate submarines to bridge us to that capability down the road. So um, from my point of view, I am pursuing um, a military off-the-shelf procurement of diesel electric submarines to support Canada and that uh, exactly how and when and how many uh, is something that the defense policy update is beginning the process of determining. Sir, absolute honor and pleasure uh, talking to you. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time uh, and certainly looking forward to continuing uh, the conversation. Fairwinds following seas up there and looking forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you very much for a great discussion today. Appreciate it.